I have but one simple truth to impart to you tonight from this scripture text that we've just read. One simple idea I hope will seep deep into our souls, stay with us, and be used of God to change us in important ways. And the simple truth is this. You and I will never be able to receive the wondrous gift that came to us on Good Friday. Never even be able to understand what we're really doing here at all. So long as we remain deceived in any way about our need before God. A famous celebrity once said this about the cross of Christ. I do not want anybody to die for me, he said. Sure, I've had a few drinks. I've had a few girlfriends. But if that's going to put me in hell, so be it. On one level, I think the comment reveals a self-deception about the nature of God's judgment upon sin that would be almost comic were it not so tragic and so very widespread. To just shrug off the idea, to make a joke about it actually, about this idea of eternal separation from God as if it were a regrettable but tolerable price for doing as I please in life suggests a heart that has lost the ability to see reality clearly anymore. Were God to turn his face from us for even an instant, the experience would be the most cataclysmic agony we had ever known. And this, some believe, is actually the agony we get to witness on the cross when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this Jesus experiences but for an instant. What, however, would it be to lose God's care for all of eternity? What would it be to lose communion with the one who has made us, who is even now sustaining us, who offers to save us? What would it be to lose him for all of eternity? It would be a horror so colossal that the Bible struggles to find words for it. It would be a loss so cataclysmic that the Bible resorts to poetic images just trying to get around it, to images of fiery torture and teeth-gnashing torment and the frigid loneliness of the outer darkness of remote space. This is what the Bible reaches for just to take us to the very edge of it. And yet this is the destination. This is the ultimate outcome for those who cannot see their need for grace and redemption enough to ask for it. 
to plead for it, to beg for it, to yearn for it, to open their life to it. And this, of course, is the second deception common to man. It's not just that some people don't take the hell of separation from God very seriously. It is that the self-satisfied and deluded part of ourselves doesn't really feel a desperate need for the forgiveness of God that preserves our communion with Him. The proof of this is that some of us are frankly not all that troubled by our sin anymore, if we ever were. The truth is that some of us have come to view our impulses as simply natural and normal, acceptable. Some of us have come to see our lust and our envy as a form of red-blooded striving. We have come to think of our searing or our simmering hateful wrath towards other people as entirely justifiable. Some of us have come to regard our greed as good, as a way of reaping our just desserts or, or helping out the economy. We've grown comfortable with a life of, of gluttonous consuming and containing and dusting and upgrading and disposing. And when someone dares to speak of such impulses as deadly sins, as evidences that we are moving toward a hellish separation from a holy, pure, and gloriously good God, we look at that person as judgmental, fanatical, puritanical at best. Which is why some of us in this room right now have already put up walls against almost everything I'm saying. But here is the reality. Here is the reality to which Good Friday plainly points, take it or leave it as each of us must choose to take it or to leave it. It is possible for somebody to live with sin for so long that he or she becomes blind to it. It is possible for someone to develop a heart condition so severe that even if the great physician himself came into their midst, even if he walked right into the middle of their town, even if he came into their religious circles offering them a transplant needed to save them, instead of saying a humble, heartfelt, awestruck, thank you, they might respond by nailing him to a cross. It could happen. I've heard it could happen. But sometimes there at the foot of the cross, God gives somebody a glimpse of a truth that changes them, that opens them up to Him, to what He wants to do, that alters their life 
for all of eternity. And, and Brian Keith Moore was somebody like that. And Brian Keith Moore recorded his awakening about his need in a journal that his parents found along with his favorite things a few days after the 18-year-old died in a tragic car crash. And even if you are familiar with the story, I want to invite you to listen closely to it again because it paints a picture it sometimes takes repeated exposures to in order to see ourselves properly in it. In that place between wakefulness and dreams, writes Brian Moore, I found myself in a room. There were no distinguishing features there save for one wall that was covered with this bank of drawers like the ones you find in old libraries that contain index cards listing titles by author or by subject. Raise your hand if you've seen those kinds of drawers someplace. Yeah. The files here, however, stretch from the floor all the way up to the ceiling, and they seemed endless in either direction. And the headings on each one of those drawers were unlike any I had ever seen in any library I'd ever visited, writes Moore. The first to catch my attention was one that read, People I Have Cursed. And I opened it up, and I began to flip through the cards. Then I quickly shut it, shocked to realize that I recognized the names written there. And then without being told, I knew where I was. I was in a place unlike no other. This lifeless room was a crude cataloging system for my entire life. Here were written the actions of my every moment, big and small, and in a detail that my memory couldn't match. A sense of wonder and curiosity, coupled with a feeling of dread, stirred within me, and I began randomly opening up file drawers and exploring their contents. Some brought me joy and, and sweet memories, and others a sense of shame and regret so intense that I looked over my shoulder to see if, if anybody was watching me, if anybody else could see what was on the cards. A file named Friends was there next to one marked Friends I Have Betrayed, and I could barely look. The titles ranged from the mundane to the outright weird. There was one that said, books I have read, and another one that said, lies I have told, and comfort I have given, and places I have gone, and friends I have envied, 
and people I slandered, jokes I laughed at. Some are almost hilarious in their exactness, like words I've yelled at others in traffic. And others I, I, I couldn't laugh at, like things I fought in anger toward people I say I love. I never cease to be surprised by the contents, wrote Moore. Often there were many more cards than I expected, sometimes fewer than I had hoped. And the sheer volume of the life that I had lived was, it was just overwhelming. How had I had the time to live each of these moments recorded on those cards? But each card confirmed the truth. Each card was actually written in my own handwriting. Each card was signed with my own signature. And when I pulled out the file marked objects I've acquired, I realized that these files actually grew to hold all of the contents needed. The cards were packed tightly in that particular file. And yet after two or three yards of the cards, I hadn't even found the end of the file. I shut it. I was, I was shamed, not so much by all of the objects that were listed in there, but by the, the vast amount of time and energy I knew that file represented. I mean, how could I have placed so much of myself into things instead of people? And when I came to a file marked lustful thoughts, I felt a chill run through my body. I pulled this drawer out only an inch, not willing to test its size, and I drew out a card. And I shuddered at its detailed content. I felt sick to think that such a moment had been recorded and more shame entered into my soul and almost animal rage broke out on me and one thought dominated my mind. Nobody must ever see these cards. I've got to destroy them. I've got to get rid of them. And in an insane frenzy, I yanked the entire file drawer out. Its size didn't matter now. I had to empty out all of the contents and get rid of them. I had to. But as I took it at one end and began pounding the drawer on the floor, I could not dislodge a single card. Not a one. And I became desperate pulling out the card, only to find it was as strong as steel and it would not yield to my tearing, no matter how much I tried. And so utterly helpless and defeated, I returned the file to its slot and I leaned my forehead 
against the wall. And then I saw it. The title on the drawer there, it read, People I Have Shared the Gospel With. And I pulled on its handle. And a box no more than three inches long came out. And, and I could count the cards it held on one hand. An empty feeling ached in my gut. The tears began to come in waves of sobs so deep that they shook my whole body. It was so overwhelming. No one must ever know of this room. No one must ever know of its contents. And then I saw him. No. Not you, Jesus. No, you can't come in here. And I watched helplessly as Jesus entered the room and began to open the files, all of them, and to read every one of their cards. I couldn't bear to watch his response. I just sat on the floor with my hands over my eyes and my face and my mouth. But in the moments I did dare to look up and to look into his face, I saw there a sorrow even deeper than my own. He seemed to go intuitively to the worst of the boxes first. And so I covered my face with my hands again and I just began to sob. And then Jesus walked over and, and he put his arm around me and he pulled me to himself and he wept with me. He could have said so much but he didn't say a word. He just wept with me. And then he got up and he walked back to the files. And starting at one end of the room, he took out a file drawer and with those nail-pierced hands, he began to sign his name over each one of them in blood, in his own blood. And I cried out, no, you can't, Jesus. Not your pure name on those cards. 
No, you can't. But they were all there. All of them, covered now, written in red, so rich, so alive. The name of Jesus covering mine, written in his blood. I don't think I will ever understand, writes Moore, how he did it so quickly. But in the next instant, it seemed I heard him close the last of the file drawers and, and walk back to my side. And he placed his hand on my shoulder now. And, and he looked deeply into my eyes. And he said just three words. It is finished. And then he took me by the hand and he helped me up and he led me out of that room and I found myself hungry, hungry to live anew. And far off in the distance, I could see the sun beginning to rise over an empty tomb. I share this story today because between the coming dawn and where you and I find ourselves tonight, there stands a cross There stands the cross of Christ. And many people will look up at that cross pretty impassively, as if it was just another piece of furniture, as if it was just a, 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 a piece of art, as if it was just some kind of jewelry they could hang around their neck blithely, and inside, what they feel is interesting, but I don't need anyone to die for me. I don't need it. But there will always be a few who stand at that place with a different kind of vision. There will always be a few people in any crowd who see the room at that cross. Maybe they'll picture the sort of room that Brian Moore described. Perhaps they'll envision that great throne room that the book of Revelation describes where the scriptures say all of us will one day stand before Jesus for the final reckoning. But whatever their image of it, those rare people, the wise and the humble, they fall to their knees in awe and in gratitude because they know the truth. They need to be here. And there is room at the cross for them.
This is how the Apostle John puts it. And I pray you will take it into your heart as we come this night to the Lord's table. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. This, beloved, is the good news I proclaim to you this night, that he who came not to be served, but to serve, has, in fact, served here. Our very greatest need. Please pray with me. Our Lord, as we look upon the cross, give us light to see both ourselves and you with fresh eyes. Move us to a deeper awareness of what great sinners we have been and what a great Savior you are. And if there is any one of us here tonight who has not asked you to come in to their heart with the power of your blood to cleanse and renew, then, Lord, let this be the night. Let this be the moment of redemption. Please stoop down and serve our deepest need. Fill us at this table, Lord. Transplant your life within us. For we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. And all who knew they needed it, said,